whether you wanted to or not, last week we were talking about suffering. <laughs> we were talking about the necessary suffering that uh, life will just give us. We don't have to go looking for it. It's not like in the Middle Ages where you self-flagellated to create your own suffering. We don't need to do that. It will find us. And when it does, what's our attitude toward it? If we are resisting it, if we think it's evil, if we were trying to pray it away and avoid it at all costs, if we think it is a, a marker of God's judgment against us or displeasure, then we are going to miss the opportunity that suffering brings. Because what we were talking about is that there are two paths to this transformation that Jesus is trying to bring us to. And that's great love and great suffering. And at first glance, they look like they're polar opposites. But the point is that both love and suffering are the powers great enough in our lives to actually strip away that egoic self, what we think of ourselves, the illusions that we have about ourselves that keep us at arm's length, that keep us continuing to live as if we are a completely separate being, having nothing really to do with the rest of humanity or creation, moving from one air-conditioned compartment to another, you know, with rubber-soled shoes, never really electrically grounding ourselves ever to the earth, you know, that sort of thing. But if we can strip that away, and love and suffering can do that, we can see the actual interconnectedness, that oneness that God is all about, that this whole creation is all about. And so that's the case that I was trying to make last week that there is this necessary part of life that we call suffering, that we look at as evil and bad because it hurts and it frustrates our agenda. But actually, if we will lean into it, if we will let it do its work on us, it can actually take us where we need to go. And the, there are two halves. These are the two halves of Jesus' one and only way to the Father. Great love and great suffering. And he talks about both, almost in equal measure. And we wonder, you know, what do we do first? <laughs> the truth is that each one leads into the other. Love always leads to suffering because there's always going to be a loss. And whatever you love, when you lose it, is going to create the suffering. Suffering, if you approach it the way we're talking about, is always going to lead back to love. As Khalil Gibran beautifully put it, the suffering hollows out greater spaces in our hearts to be able to let more in is a way that it can work. But it only works if we're ready to see the suffering as the role of teacher in our lives. If we're ready to see it as that. Not an abuser, but an actual teacher. Pushing through the suffering, not resisting it, and letting it do its work in unending cycles in our lives. Because there are always going to be traumas that are going to be coming. There are always going to be losses and hurts that are coming. And so every time that we hit one of those, go through another cycle of grief, if we do go through the cycle of grief, then we are in that spiral fashion, ascending. And each one has the power to bring us to that. But if you look at our lives right now, if you look at our lives communally right now, if we look at our nation and our society right now, it seems to me that we're sort of showing each other that we're generally not ready to accept suffering as, uh, as suffering is intended, the way that we're, we're talking about right now. Over the last two and a half years, and the, the misery index has gone off the hook, off the charts, and the level of suffering has come up with it. 
And I wanted to read just a little bit to see if we can put a finer point on this because it's really important for us to see when we do not and when we are not ready and able to deal with the pain of life, the suffering of life, in this positive way that allows us to grow from it, what actually happens. The, the, the title of this article is, Why Are People Acting So Weird? Now, it actually goes back to March, but I think it's even weirder now, right? Everyone is acting so weird. An obvious recent weirdness was Will Smith smacking Chris Rock at the Oscars, but people have been behaving badly on smaller stages for months, if not years now. Last week, a man was arrested after he punched a gate agent at the Atlanta airport. In February, a man slid around the chairlift boarding area of a Canadian ski resort, flailing at security guards and refusing to comply with a mask mandate. During the pandemic, disorderly and unhinged conduct, everything from rudeness and carelessness to physical violence has increased. Americans are driving more recklessly, crashing their cars and killing pedestrians at higher rates. And early 2021 saw the highest number of unruly passengers unruly passenger incidents on airlines ever. Healthcare workers say their patients are behaving more violently. At one point, Missouri hospitals plan to outfit nurses with panic buttons. Schools, too, are reporting an uptick in disruptive behavior. In 2020, the U.S. murder rate rose nearly by a third, the biggest increase on record, and then rose again in 2021. Car thefts spiked 14% last year, and carjackings have surged in various cities. What on earth is happening? How did Americans go from clapping for healthcare workers to threatening them? More than a dozen experts on crime, psychology, and social norms recently walked me through a few possible explanations. First, we're all stressed out. Can you relate? Can I get an amen? Yeah, there is rage and frustration coursing through society right now. A study said the number one reason by far was people feeling stressed and overwhelmed. The pandemic created a lot of high stress, low reward situations, and now everyone is teetering closer to their breaking point. Someone who may have lost a job, a loved one, or a friend to the pandemic might be pushed over the edge by an innocuous request that provokes them. And people are encountering more provocations, staffing shortages, mask mandates, higher prices. At the same time, their tolerance is much lower. Second, people are drinking more. People have been coping with the pandemic by drinking more and doing more drugs, and a lot of these disruptive incidents involve substance abuse. Americans have been drinking 14% more days a month during the pandemic, and drug overdoses have also increased since 2019. Substance abuse treatment and mental health care, never especially easy to come by, was further interrupted by COVID. Just try to get a therapist right now and see how you do. I mean, supply and demand, many therapists aren't even accepting new clients. Many therapists aren't even answering the phone. It, it's, it's crazy out there at a time when we need it the most, when demand is spiking. We're social beings and isolation is changing us, the third reason. We're social beings and isolation is changing us. The pandemic loosened ties between people. Kids stopped going to school. Parents stopped going to work. Parishioners stopped going to church. People stopped gathering in general. Sociologists think all of this isolation shifted the way that we behave. We're more likely to break rules when our bonds to society are weakened. 
We tend to put our own private interest over those of others or the public. Scholar Emily Durkheim called this state enemy, a lack of social norms that leads to lawlessness. She wrote, we are moral beings to the extent that we are social beings. That's, that's a fascinating line. We are moral beings to the extent that we are social beings. In other words, if we stop being social, we stop being moral, right? And we're seeing that happen right now. In the past two years, we have stopped being social, and in many cases, we have stopped being moral, too. And it's, that's just, well, the beginning, right, of it all. Of course, that was how many months ago? Because now we're dealing with the great resignation, right? So many people that resigned during the pandemic and in the aftermath of the pandemic, which is now leading to the great regret. Have you heard that one? Now they really regret that they left their jobs and they're trying to get back in again and they're finding that their jobs may not be available in the way that they were. And if neither of those are working for you, now you got quiet quitting. Have you heard this one yet? Quiet quitting. This is mostly millennials and Gen Zers, but they are just not going to do anything more than the absolute letter of the stated job description. They're not going to put themselves out. They're not going to try to hustle. They're not going to try to work. They're just going to show up, do the absolute minimum, and go home and then focus on the things that they want to do, the social things, the recreational things. And so they've got this quiet quitting going on, and now there's a backlash to that. There is downsizing going on. We were just talking about rents, where rents are right now. People are downsizing. Tiny homes are becoming a thing. Homes that are four to 500 square feet and maybe on wheels that uh, especially, again, millennials and Gen Zers are doing to try to escape, you know, to try to get off the grid as much as possible, to just get away from all the craziness. But the crime spikes that she was talking about, and we've got mass shootings on top of that. But for a while, there seem to be happening every single week. Flash mob burglaries. I mean, who ever thought about this? There are so many people that will come and break through windows of a retail establishment, they're overwhelming the police. What are they supposed to do when there's that many people involved? And now there are street takeovers. I don't even heard about this one. This is like fast and furious on our streets. They literally just block off an entire street just on a spontaneous basis and are doing all kinds of crazy and dangerous car stunts, and generally just nasty retail customers, you know? As I've told you, I hear, get to hear about this every night that Marion comes home from work, but it's just people are unhinged. And, and like, like she was saying, when you're at your edge, the slightest thing throws you over, you know, that you got to pay five cents for a bag. Oh my God, you know, the nuclear bomb just dropped. And they just react, react, react. All these things are going on. So, if the last two years of our lives were a test, remember last week we were talking about the tempting, which is really parasmos in Greek, which means a trial or a test. It is something that you test to see how strong it is, like your fishing line. What does it test out at? How, how strong is it? So if the last two years were that kind of test, that kind of trial for us, well, I think we can say that we're failing pretty badly here. You know, we have shown ourselves to be people who are unready not yet ready to endure the pain and the sufferings that are laid in front of us and to endure them in a way that allows us to move to the other side and learn something, to open up to a greater degree. What's happening is we're seeing ourselves as victims and sometimes cosmic victims. Why is God doing this to us? 
And so the question should be on all of our lips is how do we become ready? We've all been feeling this increase of the misery index. We've been feeling the increase in stress to the extent that if you're still working especially, you're feeling the lack of staff. You're feeling the extra burden that's being placed on those who are left because of the staffing shortages, and yet there isn't enough pay to cover the increase in prices. And so we're feeling this. How are you reacting to it? Pretty well? Is it something that you can see where you're starting to chip away at your moral sense? You know? How do we become ready to be able to make friends with life as it presents, even when it's painful, at least to the extent that we can push through, to the extent that we can get to the other side, that we can go through that cycle of grief, get to acceptance, and realize that we know something more about ourselves and about our relationships with each other, that we have more tools to bring to the community, the family, whoever it is that we're connected with. How do we, as individuals, and then if enough individuals can do it as groups, enter this path of suffering that will lead us to great love? How do we do that? A few weeks ago we were talking about, and I was making this huge point, that Jesus is a poet. And we don't normally think of him as a poet. But when you go back and you actually read what he's putting out there, it's some of the best poetry in the world. It doesn't look like poetry to our eyes because it doesn't fit the rules of English poetry. But Jewish poetry is a separate thing. And if it isn't poetry technically, the way that he uses words and metaphor and figures of speech in his stories and his parables, the connections that he draws in the stories that he tells is pure literary poetry. It's beautiful. The trouble with Jesus for us as modern Westerners is that Jesus thinks and expresses himself about as far from rational Western thought as you could possibly get. You know, It's like he was looking forward at, at us and saying, okay, I'm going to just tweak this 180 degrees and see what I can do here. You know, He's getting as far away as he possibly can. And this is why the church has had such a problem with actually using the red letters of the Gospels as a foundation for the church. We've used Paul. Because Paul thinks more like we do as a Westerner, as a, as a Hellenized Jew straddling both East and West. You can hang a church on Paul, but it's so difficult to do that with Jesus. Read the Sermon on the Mount and you'll see it's anarchy if you really put it down. And so Jesus is someone that is frustrating for us. Even his own disciples, as he was teaching them, got frustrated with him. Why don't you just speak plainly. Why are you always talking in parables, they asked him, right? So if they got frustrated, how many times have you just thought, man, I just wish Jesus would just say the thing straight out. Why does he keep beating around the bush? Why does he always wiggle off the hook when someone asks him a direct question? And we've talked about why he does that, because he is not trying to feed our need for certainty. That would just take us down the wrong path. He's trying to break that in us and take us back into mystery and paradox. But it is so frustrating for us as he does his poet thing. Now, I think that this is part of the allure of Buddhism in the West in general and in our country in particular. Because when you think about it, Buddha is much more an engineer than he is a poet. He thinks like an engineer. He lays down very definitive and complex paths and systems now, I don't know how much you know about Buddhism, but Buddhism is based on three universal and core truths. 
And one of them is the impermanence of everything, that everything is constantly changing. The second one is that this self that we think that we are doesn't exist. It's an illusion. It's just a projection of our minds. And the third is that life is about suffering. That's called dukkha. Now, that third truth is then broken down into what they call the four noble paths. First of all, that life is suffering. We've kind of established that one already. Second, that the cause of suffering is either desire, craving, or attachment as we understand it. And then the cessation or the end of suffering is non-attachment to let go. And then the fourth noble truth is the path to the cessation of suffering. How do you get from samsara, which is this physical world, to nirvana, which is the quenching or the, the blowing out of this understanding of ourselves as separate beings? And then they take that last noble truth, the path, and they break that down <laughs> into the eightfold path. Are you starting to get the picture here of how this works? And the eightfold path is about you know right understanding or the right view, the right worldview of things, and then the right thought, which really translates into right intent. What do you intend to do? Then right speech and right action. How about right livelihood? That you make a living for yourself and you care for yourself and all your dependents and you're responsible in a way that harms nobody else. In other words, you have an honest job. You know. After that is right effort. Are you really willing to show up and put the effort into this? Then right mindfulness, awareness. Are you building your awareness? And then finally, right focus or concentration which is going to be practiced as meditation. And then there are those inside all of that that are broken down further. So you see wh why I say Buddha's kind of an engineer? You know, he thinks like Doug over there. He's an engineer, as opposed to the poet. Now, for those of us in the West, as things are getting crazier, what are we craving? We're craving something definitive. We're craving something certain. You look at a system like that, it's like, okay, that's got teeth and traction. I can do something with that. But Jesus, you know, how do we really grab onto that? Because Jesus never gives us a numbered list of anything. He never gives us bullet points. He never gives us an executive summary. What he gives us are top-level concepts. He gives us stories. He gives us parables. He gives us metaphor that point to these concepts. Years and years and decades and decades ago, I had a vocal coach and he, what he said was, was, was interesting to me at the time, and it's just kind of rattled through my brain for all these years, is that when you're singing, you're, you're trying to deal with muscles that you can't see. You can't see them, you can't look at them and actually will them to do something. They're kind of buried inside. And so he said, don't worry about trying to figure out what your vocal folds are doing. He said, you just sing, I'll listen, and when I hear you produce a tone correctly, I'm going to tell you. And I want you to note the sensation, note the feeling of that, memorize that feeling, and then reproduce the feeling when you sing. Because reproducing the feeling will indirectly reproduce the right musculature and the right tone, blah, blah. I thought it was a really interesting way of approaching it. But if you think about it, Jesus is sort of doing the same thing. He doesn't give us the what that we long for, that certainty. What he gives us is the finished product. This is what it looks like. Here is the how. It's love. It's relationship. Recreate the love and the relationship. Recreate the connections. And then you can put whatever path you want to together underneath that or around that. But this is what it feels like. This is what it looks like to be living in kingdom, 
to be on this one and only path to the Father. Recreate those sensations, those qualities, and you'll be going in the right direction. Jesus is giving us then principles, right? He's giving challenges to embedded thought, constantly doing that, because our embedded thought is going to be the block wall that keeps us from anywhere he's trying to take us. And he's constantly introducing paradox, introducing mystery, confounding the rational process that is our enemy when it comes to things of the spirit. We have to be able to suspend that. And everything that he's doing is trying to move us beyond where we are right now, to take us beyond that place, to take us beyond where we think we can even go, to take us beyond where we can even imagine He's parting curtains so we can see there's another there there that we never even imagined. And you know what? He's even trying to take us beyond where we think we should go. And that's huge. Because we're creatures about justice. And he's showing us a love that is unjust. Always unjust in favor of the beloved. And it doesn't compute. We don't even think we're supposed to go there. But Jesus is trying to take us exactly there. How do we go beyond? He's trying to open us up to beyond. And he's telling us that unless we're willing to go beyond all these things, where we think we can go, where we can imagine, where we think we should go, then we can't follow him. We can't get to the place that he's trying to take us. And in doing so, and in the path itself, as we start putting down our feet and walking the path, we will understand that as creating our own noble truths about this. Creating our own path of however many folds we want, however many steps that we may need. And Christians have been doing that for 2,000 years. Creating paths and creating truths and creating paradigms and, and numbered lists out of these top-level concepts that Jesus had given us to try to make sense of it, to try to make it more repeatable, recreatable, I suppose. The interesting thing is the best ones that we've done out of Christianity look a lot like Buddhas. I mean, they have those same basic qualities to them. But Jesus doesn't give us that. He leaves that up to us. If we can just open up to this beyondness, if we can just open up our willingness to let go of everything that we are clinging to, then something can happen. So what are these beyonds that Jesus is trying to lead us? We're going to have to dig a little deeper to find them because they're not listed the way that they are in Buddhism. I wanted to read some passages from um, the Gospels and one from James to try to illustrate where Jesus is trying to take us, these, this beyondness. If you have the insert then I've listed, I've kind of grouped them into three different categories. Um, Brandon will put them up on the, on the board as well. But the first one is he's trying to take us beyond obedience. And for most of us, obedience is the be-all and end-all. It's the beginning and the end. If we can just obey God, just obey his law, then we're saved, then we're good. You know, that's all we need. But Jesus is trying to take us beyond obedience, graduate obedience. He's trying to take us from the mindset of the legalist who thinks that just following the law is going to be salvation. At Matthew 5.17, right in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but I did come to fulfill. Now, we've talked about this over and over again. 
The law is necessary for us as individuals, and especially it's necessary for us as a group. If we don't have rules, the group falls apart. We can't expect anything on a repeatable basis, and life in a group becomes anarchy. We've got to have rules. And the individual needs those rules, too, because the individual, especially as you're growing up as a child, you need to have structure. You need to have discipline. You need to have container around you that holds you in place. If nothing else, it just keeps you alive long enough. You know, like telling your kid you can't go in the street. You don't need to tell them why. Just don't go in the street or you're going to get spanked. Why? Because I said so. Because you're just trying to keep the kid alive long enough for them to get the concept behind the rule. Well, the law works in much the same way. We absolutely need the law. But the law is only going to frame the door. We've got to walk through the door. And when you walk through the door, you have to graduate obedience. If you really want to go where Jesus is going, you've got to fulfill, as he says, the intent of the law, which sometimes means you have to break the code of the law. We've done this over and over in here. Is lying always wrong? Well, it's unlawful, but is it always wrong? Sometimes lying is righteous. And we have to know the difference when it is and when it's not. Most of the time, lying breaks down relationship. Other times, it's the lie that preserves life and relationship. And we have to know the difference. That's why Jesus is saying, I'm not here to abolish it. I'm here to fulfill it. And then he lays out all these ways in which we need to supersede the law. We need to exceed it, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. At Luke 18, starting at verse 18, actually, I'm going to start at verse 21. But this is the story where the rich young man comes up to Jesus. What must I do to obtain eternal life? And the first thing Jesus says to him, well, keep the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Don't lie, cheat, steal. Don't, you know, don't, have a, don't be adulterous. All the, he says, I've kept all these things from my youth. This is verse 21. All these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus knows that he's telling the truth. He knows that he's sincere. In another gospel, he looks at this man and loves him. When Jesus hears this, he says to him, One thing then you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. This man had been obedient all his life. He had kept the law fastidiously all his life, and yet he still knows there's something missing. And he comes to Jesus looking for another rule to follow, a greater rule to follow. And Jesus says, you've got to now throw out the rules. This isn't just about his physical wealth, his financial wealth. This is about everything that he holds dear, everything that he clings to for his survival and his salvation as he sees it. Are you willing to sell all that? Are you willing to jettison it? Go beyond all that. Go out into this great uncharted territory where you're going to feel disturbed and see what happens? Are you willing to do that? Well, in his case, he's not yet because he goes away sad. He can't do that yet. But this is what Jesus is calling us to. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you who practice lawlessness. And so beyond just the law, here's all the acts of righteousness that we would say, hey, we're prophesying. Hey, we're building 24-7 cable networks in your name. We're doing all this great stuff in your name. And yet we have to go beyond that too. 
That's just another set of rules. That's just another set of ritual that we place in our path. But does it have anything to do with the real knowing, the long-term intimacy that that word implies in the Aramaic? If we don't know, if we haven't gone beyond these perfunctory and, and sometimes great ministerial works, then the Lord would still say, I don't know you. You haven't gone beyond. And beyond obedience then leads us to going beyond certainty. We need to go beyond the mindset of the literalist now. First it was the legalist, now it's the literalist. Many uh, psychologists now recognize that most neuroses, human neuroses, are caused by an intolerance of uncertainty. If we can't handle uncertainty, if we can't handle the unknown, if we don't have control over every jot and tittle, it literally makes us crazy. It creates all these fears that come up out of the unconscious and play themselves out in these various neuroses. And the more fearful we are, the more we want certainty. Why in times like this are the strongest, most authoritarian leaders the one who draw the biggest crowds? Because people want a strong man around them or a strong woman around them who will protect them and show them exactly where and how thick the walls are of their fortress. But Jesus says at John 12, starting at verse 24, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life, that is, prefers it less, in the Aramaic, in this world, will keep it for eternal life. And then, that's a, one of the metaphors we used last week. And then the other one that's parallel to it. So he uses this image of the seed, you know, that is its own thing, you know, self-contained, hard and crusty on the outside, but there it is. But it doesn't fulfill its purpose until it's put in the ground and watered, and it breaks open and ceases to be what it is but coming forth from it is a plant that yields much fruit. We have to die to what we think ourselves is. We have to die to that certainty that we built around the illusions of self in order to fulfill the purpose as human beings that we have. And then the other metaphor that he uses here at Luke 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Same ending, right? But the idea here now is a different metaphor. Literally dying on the cross. Letting die that, again, that sense of self. No greater love has this than someone lay down his life for his friend. But that's just not physical death. That's letting die this idea that we have in ourselves so that we can connect with our friend. We can actually be in relationship with our friend because our idea of ourselves no longer separates us from one another, no longer sees ourselves only in competition with one another, and everything else is adversarial. Jesus is trying to bring us, and he makes the strongest point at Matthew 10, verse 38, who does, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Wow, that's pretty harsh. But he's saying, you cannot go where I'm going as long as you're holding on to the seed, the self. If you want to be a human seed, okay. My father still loves you. But if you want to be a human planting, 
that bears much fruit. That's a different thing. And the only way that happens is if you pick up your cross daily. Every day we have to die to that conscious mind that keeps us separate from each other. And that Luke 11, starting at verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, and this is from last week as well, this generation is an evil generation. That would be Bisha. Bisha Alma. Which means unripe, unready, immature. Not evil in the malicious way we typically think of evil, but you're just not ready. You're not ready for these things. This generation is unripe. It seeks a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. In our fear, we want signs, don't we? (laughs) We want God to just open up the heavens and show us exactly the risk-free path. You know, the 100% foolproof insurance policy that will take us everywhere we want to go without a single misstep. No suffering, no loss. That's what we want. We want that certainty. Give me a sign. Always reminds me of, was that movie, Bruce Almighty? Give me a sign. And the truck with all the signs and everything. Give me a sign. Give me a sign. But you're not going to get a sign. The sign of Jonah that he does talk about is what we talked about last week. It's going into the belly of the beast. It's going into the darkness. It's going into uncertainty. It's allowing yourself to fall as Jesus did into the tomb for three days before coming up the other side. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to let go of the craving and the need for certainty in order to be able to find what is really there? And then after moving beyond certainty, he needs us to move actually beyond belief. This is beyond the mindset of the fundamentalist. It's not just our beliefs that are going to save us. This is where I switch to James because he says it so well here in chapter 2, starting in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works, faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Adam believed God, I'm sorry, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this is always a tough one for us. Why would God ask Abraham to kill his son? (sighs) Take him right to the edge and then stop him right before the knife sank in. Now, does that make any sense to any of us? See, that's the problem we have with some of these stories. We're, We're so unacculturated to what's going on. It's hard for us to understand. But put it back into context. Abraham was told by God that he would be a father of many nations, that his descendants would outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. And yet he had no son. How in the world was this promise going to be fulfilled if he had no son? He got so desperate that he made a son with one of his other concubines or, you know, the the maid, you know, and, 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 and created Ishmael. And then, miraculously, when he's over 100 and his wife is as well, she gets pregnant and has Yitzhak, which means laughter in uh, Hebrew, because they laughed when they were told they were going to have a baby. 
So here's this miracle child. Here's this Yitzhak born to them when they were over 100 years old, right? Now he had something to hang all of his beliefs on. Now he realized it was through this miracle child that all of this promise of God and these great nations and this great heritage was going to flow. And then God asked him to kill the son. Now, we can understand this as literal if we want to, or we can understand it as metaphorical. But if you want to understand the story as literal, make sure you don't miss the metaphorical because that's what's going to speak to us mostly now here because no one is asking us to kill our child. But what we are being asked to do is to look beyond what we think is our staunch belief in what is going to save us and get us where we want to go because Jesus is saying, unless you're ready to let that go and realizes that this thought in your head is not what is going to save you, but your willingness to take a risk. What is more risky than taking your son to an altar to sacrifice him? The one thing that you thought was going to fulfill God's promise in your life. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to take our personal sacred cow and sacrifice it on the altar? Are we willing to let go of the belief system that we think is everything when Jesus wants us to be, go beyond that as well and find a salvation in the very presence of God that supersedes all of that, that none of this could ever touch. The idea here is that beliefs and ideas don't change us. They don't transform us, and they certainly don't save us, but they can lead to change. They can lead to transformation. But we must act even without certainty. We must risk something and risk letting go of what we have believed in so long and hung on to so long so that we can actually experience what really will save us. Now, these three things are all related. They point to the same need in us, the need to detach from our identity that we have with our egoic self and the small self that we have constructed through child development and on through everything else we've experienced in our lives. And this is the suffering that we're going to, part of the suffering we're going to encounter in life because that ego does not die easily. It is painful to lose that because it has been with us for so long. It has sustained us up to this point. But just like the young man, we realize there's still something missing. It can't take us the rest of the way. We need something else. And so this cracking open to vulnerable humility is what we're trying to do. And that takes great effort. It takes great work. It doesn't just happen. And people think it happens immediately in an instant or in an event. If they don't do the work behind that, then you have to see where they end up. Our ego, our egoic mind, our concept of self is a very hardened target. <laughs> It's fortified. You know, it's not going to go easy. And it has to be. I mean, if we don't have a strong egoic container, you know, if that ego of ourselves is really fragile, if it's neurotic, if it's even psychotic, well, then it's not going to sustain us through life. It's not going to allow us to compete. It's not going to allow us to be able to, to live in, in a world as difficult as this one. And the first half of life is supposed to be and is dedicated to building that egoic container, building that egoic shell, building up that, that strong illusion. Well, we don't think of it as illusion, but that strong sense of self so that we can actually interface and work in the world and do the things that we need to do. 
But the second half of life, it begins with recognizing the limitations of that egoic container, of that self that we have constructed, and realizing that it's not going to take us where we want to go. That's the midlife crisis. That's what happens starting in the mid-30s and early 40s, is the realizations of the limitations. How do you realize it? Well, you start to feel burned out. You start to feel depressed. You start thinking, is this really all there is? Just going back to work, no matter how successful I've been, is this really it? Is there anything more? This is the unconscious recognizing of the limitations of the first half of life and what we've built thus far. The second half of life is about stepping away from, detaching from that identity of the small self, the ego, and finding this deeper self that really is connected to God in a way that we can't describe in words. It's about discovering radically new concepts. It's about restoring mystery and paradox back into our life. It's literally about dying to self, about picking up that cross daily. And now this is where the two paths come back into play, love and suffering. But they're going to be experienced practically as breakthroughs and peak experiences that we've had, and then just routine, day-to-day, everyday repeated experience that we tend to look at as mundane, boring, or insignificant. Those are the two paths as we experience them through life. In the first one, these are the epiphanies that we have, the aha moments, right? The peak experiences. Maybe it's a conversion experience that you had early on when you were converting to the faith and you had this transcendent experience. Maybe it was a vision, maybe it was a dream, who knows what it was. But it was a transcendent experience of some kind. It was the direct experience of the unity that is love, the oneness underneath the seeming diversity of things that is this love. It's this breakthrough. And then the routine is the discipline. It's the work of spiritual formation day in and day out that we look as tedious or insignificant. And it feels like suffering. Now, you might ask, okay, which comes first? Is it chicken or the egg? You know, does the transcendent experience come first? Does the work come first? How we understand this? And all of that is an individual experience that you will have in your life. And you probably already have that experience in one way or another. Some of us have the breakthrough first, the conversion experience first, you know, the honeymoon period first. And others only get that after years of really hard work. Spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, right? Y'all know Mother Teresa, of course. I don't know if you know, about 20 years ago, some of her letters, or a whole chunk of her letters written to her spiritual mentor uh, were published. And what they revealed is that she was one of those who had this intense, intense experience early on as as a young Catholic nun that propelled all the work that she did for the next 60 years. But she didn't have it through those 60 years. I mean, here was this huge experience, this bump at the beginning, and then it just settled down into the day-to-day routines of what she did. She managed to keep that going for 60 years, but she was lamenting in these letters that she thought maybe something was wrong with her, that God didn't care for her anymore, wasn't with her anymore, because she wasn't feeling the same thing that she felt early on. And so that great experience at the beginning became another burden and a cross for her to bear through 60 years of incredible work and being recognized as a saint in the church and one of the, you know, only she was four foot nothing, but she stands head and shoulders above so many of the rest of humanity. And yet that was the shape of her life. 
Contrast that with Thomas Keating, a Trappist monk, monk, but the way he describes it is that the most spiritually mature people that he knew were the ones who were questioning their spirituality because they hadn't had these huge peak and emotional experiences. And yet he said they were still the most mature people that he knew. Now, in truth, it's a mixture of both, and it should be a mixture of both. Is it better to have the experience at the beginning and then maybe not have it later on? Or is it better to work until you have the experience later on? I mean, I don't know. I always think of Marissa Tomei. Do you remember the actress, Marissa Tomei? Her first movie that she was introduced was uh, my, uh, Vinny, my cousin Vinny, right? She won an Academy Award for that. Where do you go from there? <laughs> you know, it only goes down. On the other hand, having the experience at the beginning gives you something to work back toward. You have that experience. You know what that oneness feels like. And so that routine that feels like wilderness and wasteland at least is animated by you know that that there is there and you're working toward it. If you don't have that yet, it's really difficult sometimes. Now, my personal experience was the latter. It was probably a good 10 years before I had what I would consider a real breakthrough experience. I had little ones, little emotional connections with God that I suppose kept me going. But I had a pretty hard nut to crack, and I realize that now. And I didn't have someone like me in my ear saying, you've got to crack the nut. I mean, the church that I was in was saying, you make the nut stronger, you know? And so they were going in the opposite direction. But it took me about 10 years, and then it was like, oh my God, that's it. You know, now I have the feeling and the experience to go with the work that I had done. But either way you do it, it really doesn't matter because each one is going to lead into the other. It's just start somewhere. Don't wait. Put your feet on the ground and start moving in a direction and see what happens. Because if you will do the showing up, if you will do just the working that feels like the suffering and the tedium, it's going to lead you to great love. And if you start with the great love, it's inevitably going to lead you to the suffering, which if you handle that in the same way, the willingness to keep showing up will lead you back to the great love. You can't lose. It's like a snake eating its tail. It's a circular journey that just keeps repeating as long as we're willing to let it go through our lives. But the key to this all is to keep showing up, the willingness to keep showing up day by day to what you have structured for yourself, whatever that happens to be. Coming here is part of that structure, I take it. But there's got to be more. This can't be the be-all and end-all of your structure. It's not enough. This whole string of messages that, that we've been doing for the last uh, two and a half months or so is all about building the case that there has to be an actual structure that you create, that you are disciplined and dedicated to, that you're willing to show up to every day in your life when nobody is looking, nobody's patting you on the back, and nobody's giving you any kind of awards. You know that this is what you want to do. And that works individually, and then you bring that into community here. And we're here to support that. And I'm here to support that in any way that I can. That's my main job, if I can do that, to keep showing up day by day to this work. Because without the work of faith, as James would put it, the love that we attain, the peak experiences that we have, 
won't last. That sense of unity won't last unless we have shown up to it day after day and we've driven it down into muscle memory. It's now become a part of us. As the ancients said, they would say the prayer over and over until the prayer was saying them. We need to do this work, these rituals, until they are doing us. And that's what it comes out to. They become a part of us. And the ancient church understood this. The ancient church demanded this of their adherents. It was built into the structure of the church. But we've lost this discipline. We've lost even the sense of the need or the value of this kind of discipline. But there's no substitute for the repeated work that builds awareness into real time emotional regulation so that we are stable enough to be able to be in relationship and a sense of presence. That presence without which we can't practice the love that makes us one with the Father. And just lastly, we've got this idea in our heads, I think, that the work of the Spirit or the Spirit itself is spontaneous and inspirational. You know That God shows up in power and in majesty and in a miraculous way like the wind that Jesus talked about. You know, it just shows up. Can't see it. You can hear it. Don't know where it's coming from, where it's going to. And that if we do anything to mess with that, right, that something bad is going to happen or it won't be spiritual anymore. We think God just shows up spontaneously. But here's the thing. God is always showing up. God is shown up. It's a permanent state. God is always present. There's never a time that he won't be. He doesn't withhold. He doesn't come sometimes and not other times. He's just always here. And he's always ready for us. But are we ready for God? How often does God break through into your awareness in a real way on a, on a daily basis? Do you, how often do you really feel him and feel his presence? How, do you feel, how often do you feel that you're empowered by him in whatever it is that you're trying to do? And yet God is always here. It's like this room right now is filled with radio and broadcast waves. But if we don't have a tuner, we're completely clueless that anything is going on here. God is always here. But we're not always here. See, we think if we create some kind of routine or a practice or a discipline out of our spiritual formation that we're going to kill the spirit. We're going to quench the spirit in somehow. We're going to make it non-spiritual because now it's become this, this rote sort of thing. But that's impossible. You can't do that to the spirit. We can't affect God's spirit, but we can participate in God's spirit. But only if we practice. It's like anything else. We have to practice or we're not going to be aware of God's presence in this moment, right now, if we're not disciplined to our spiritual formation, to contemplative practice, or however we purpose to do it, if we don't get ready to meet God where God is, which is always right here, right now, then we're going to miss the hour of our visitation, and we will let it go by. This is why the practice is so important. This is why the work of spiritual formation is so important. Because God is always here, and yet we experience so little of him because we're not ready to meet him. And the only way we do that is through practice. Dedicated, conscious, intentional showing up. And then, when we are practiced, when we are more mature, when we have experienced the reality of ourselves in God, then we can express ourselves 
And we can talk about our experiences in the way that the mystics do, the way that Jesus does. It seems so incomprehensible to us at first. But then it comes to us in a new way. We read something else that suddenly jumps off the page that made no sense to us before because we've had a common experience that comes with the practice. I wanted to end with a poem from Rumi, if you're familiar with him, 13th century um, Sufi, you know, Islamic poet. But just listen to the words. You know, maybe just close your eyes, sink back for a second, and listen to these words and see where they're coming from because where they're coming from is so beyond our daily experience. But it still relates to it. He writes, When I see your face, the stones start spinning. You appear, all studying wonders. I lose my place. Water turns pearly. Fire dies down and doesn't destroy. In your presence, I don't want what I thought I wanted, those three little hanging lamps. Inside your face, the ancient manuscripts seem like rusty mirrors. You breathe, new shapes appear, and the music of a desire as widespread as spring begins to move like a great wagon, drive slowly. Some of us walking alongside are lame. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. What kind of experience is expressed in words like that? What kind of beyondness causes a person to express himself in this way? What kind of beyondness causes Jesus to teach us in the way that he does, to call us out beyond everything we think we know, beyond the safety of our makeshift fortifications, to experience this kind of openness? That's where Jesus wants to meet us, in that field, to lie down in that grass. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything. Thank you for everything that you give us and throw us and show us. Thank you even for the difficulties of life that open us up to the mystery and the paradox and the unknowing. Help us to 
find ourselves more comfortable in that place. To be willing to lay down our arms and our shields and our fortifications, our defenses, so that we can experience more of who you are and who each other is, undefended, in vulnerability, in humility, and in that find out who we really are. That's what we want, Father. Even if we don't think it is, and even if we're not yet willing or ready to lay things down. But we're a work in progress, Lord, and we want to keep moving towards you. So we're praying for your patience and your grace and your empowerment to see us through. Thank you for everything, Lord, every jot and tittle. Never let us forget, we can only do this because you did it first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.